The presenting sponsor of Sober Stories is Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits. With over 17 spirits, five premixed cocktails, and one spectacular sparkling wine, all without alcohol, Liars has become the Sober Stories team's standard for zero-proof drinks that feel festive and celebratory. I've got our community and ops lead, Callie, here today. Callie, I know you're taking a break from alcohol right now. Oh, yeah, I am. I'll tell you what. I just got to the point where no matter how much I drank, no matter what it was, I would wake up the next day with a headache, and I'm just – I'm not about that life. I just Mm. can't do it anymore. We're too busy. We are too busy. And I know when you first cut out alcohol, it can feel like there's pretty much just sparkling water to drink. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like sparkling water or like soda water with bitters. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would put money on the fact that Liars is going to help you recreate all your old standards. Tell me what you're missing. Ooh, okay. Uh, All right. So like summer's coming up, right? Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. am so ready for that sun. And I am so ready to sit out on the deck, soak in that little vitamin D, and drink a Paloma. Oh, yes. We have the ruby red grapefruit here, so it like makes your oh, yeah. Paloma so much better. But mm. I just got you. Go for the Agave Blanco. It's one of their two tequila alternatives. Oh, that's dope that they have two alternatives two. as well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. What else? Oh, like a gin and tonic. You know, when mm. you're just like hitting up a dive bar or something with your buds, being able to just drink a gin and tonic easy. Everyone knows how to make them, you know? I mean, I can't – remember the last time I was in a dive bar, but yeah, sure. We'll go with it. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I like yeah. pool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't remember the last dive bar I was in, but we've got you covered still. We have two different gin alternatives. They have the pink London spirit or the dry London spirit. So if you want oh like gosh. a little pink, pink gin and tonic, we got you. Oh, you know that. I love a, I love an aesthetic moment. Aesthetic. Okay. What else? Oh, you know what? I also have it out here just like I love a mojito as well. Mm. Get that like nice herby, the like just so mint forward. Mint forward. Yeah. I'm going to put that as my tagline <laughs> in my bio. Mint forward. <laughs> Sassing a little mint forward. Yeah. Yeah. But we've got you. Liars has a white cane spirit. It's got this great little monkey on the bottle because all of their bottles have like the animal of the place where they came from. That's so fun. Yeah, they got you. Liars is into recreating and recreating well as many non-alcoholic spirits as possible. So Callie mm-hmm. and anyone listening to this, head over to liars.com and use code SOBERSTORIES1010. That's the number 10, the word 10 for 10% off your purchase. Liars gives you the freedom to drink your way, to not just provide an alternative to those who don't wish to imbibe alcohol, but to ensure that everyone, like Callie, Mm -hmm. can enjoy the mirth and the merriment of a soiree or shindig. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Hey, Sober Stories crew. Thanks for tuning into another episode of our show. I've got a quick ask for you. If you've been enjoying our Sober Stories, would you pause this episode and take a second to subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast? (laughs) Doing this is actually one of the easiest, best ways you can support this storytelling and help us reach more people. It's like an algorithm thing but it really helps. Thank you. I've got a fantastic conversation for you today. My peer and friend, Jeff Simone, spent a weekend afternoon sharing one of the most interesting conversations I've had on this podcast to date. Though we typically cover sober stories related to alcohol, Jeff brings in his perspective with opioid and amphetamine addiction to the show. 
He's also one of the smartest people I know. I truly ask him for book recs all the time, and his perspective and knowledge hits far and above specific substances of use. Jeff and I dug into some really great topics, but his story of recovery from opioid addiction really hit me, especially the part about reading his son a book to sleep. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Jeff and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, my friends, I am really excited to welcome Dr. Jeff Simone to the Sober Stories podcast. Jeff, thanks for being here today. No problem at all. It's a pleasure to be here. So give our listeners a little bit of a summary of you, kind of the high notes, the cliff notes, where you are, what you do, who is in your life, all of the relevant information before we dig into the juicy stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you know, so I'm Jeff Simone. Um, I'm a, I'm a doctor of pharmacy and a certified dietary supplement advisor by formal training. Uh, most importantly, I'm a person in long-term recovery uh, from opioid and amphetamine addiction, among other things. Uh, after after many years of trying, many many years of trying, um, I've been I've been fully abstinent since 2016. Uh, so yeah, you know, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. You know, I, I I love talking about this stuff. I could I could sit here and and talk all day. And this is this is what is what fills me up. You know, talking to people, working with people. Uh, this is this is. This is it for me. Um, you know, in terms of, of you know what I'm doing now, I have a you know, kind of few different little ventures going on. Uh, um, I have a coaching practice with with you know reaction recovery. That's that's really where I like to focus a lot of of of, of my passion. I guess um, I work with clients all over the world. You know, I, uh, it's an absolute pleasure and it's a privilege to be able uh, to do what I do on a day to day basis. You know, because uh, I mean, if you if you interviewed me ten years ago. Mm. No, like in, in the, I was working on the pharmacy bench. I was in the throes of a of a life threatening addiction. Um, you know, if you would have taken a video of me today, for example, in the last twenty four hours or so, last seventy two hours, and you would have showed me that this is where this is where this is all going to go. Uh, you know, I I live in the greater Philadelphia area. Uh, we moved here. Um, uh, I was I was out practicing in Southern California for about six years. We moved out here. We started a family. I have a I have a six-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl, and I'm living in the suburbs with my wife, and it's a it's a completely different life, and and it's one uh, that truly is beyond my wildest dreams. If you want to take uh, some some of the program uh, speak, so yep. You know, and I think that that's interesting that you say like ten years ago, if you had taken a snapshot of me and then said that this is what I'd be doing now. It's just truly unfathomable. And I think that a lot of people in recovery, and especially people who have found some sort of work or volunteer or passion or career out of recovery, it's like, I this is never something I ever could have dreamed up. But at the same time, it's like, I, I would have never dreamed up my addiction either. Right. So Tell us a little bit more about your story. I know in this space, we often talk about alcohol, but I know that opioids and methamphetamines are part of your story. So can you tell us kind of what that looked like and how, I know you've said that you're abstinent from everything at this point, what that all has looked like and and the progression of that for you? Yeah. Yeah. um, uh, And also just even like the abstinent thing, you know, I, I, I throw that in there usually kind of right out of the outset um, uh, because the way that I talk about this stuff. Uh, it is a lot different than even the way that I talked about it, you know, maybe three, four or five years ago, just mm-hmm. even, I mean, I was, I was, I was brought into recovery. I, I was, I used the word indoctrinated. Um, that was my first <laughs> sort of, <laughs> I use it and, and I use that in a positive light. I don't right. say that necessarily like I was brainwashed, right? Right, um, right. I was indoctrinated, you know, kind of via that, that kind of 12 step mentality. And a lot of it is very, 
uh, well, it is very abstinence based. Um, and, and, and sometimes it, it, it comes across maybe, or at least this is, uh, the message that I was receiving that it's a little bit hostile towards, um, mm. uh, alternate paths. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so the way that I see everything is completely different. Uh, you know, so I make it a point to say that although my path mm-hmm. is the full abstinence path, and I kind of say that right out of the outset, everything else that I usually say about this and when I'm talking to people, you know, that is certainly not the model that has to get force fed. In fact, it cannot be force fed, right? Mm. It is like sort of, sort of by definition, it's that you cannot do that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, anybody who is, I mean, the, the, you know, stages of change models kind of dominated our, our field for a very long period of time, right? So kind of anybody who, who subscribes to any of that kind of stuff. And of course, that's not, that's not just addiction, right? Right. Yeah. It's not just behavioral health. It, it is, it is anybody who's trying to make a change in any type of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could only, you know, really kind of move in a, in a certain direction. Okay. So if somebody is in that, uh, you know, if you want to call it pre-contemplative, right there, nah, mm-hmm. maybe I have a problem. I, I don't, you know, really, I think I'm going to try to work on my drinking and I'll, and I'll figure it out soon. I think if you expect that person is going to go from there to, okay, make two meetings a day, get your hand up, say you're an alcoholic, <laughs> yeah. you know, start doing this stuff. It's, it's, it's not going to happen in that, in that kind of stage one to stage five kind of progression. So, right. so that's where I see things a little bit differently than I used to. My, my bottom tended to be a little maybe more severe than, than, than mm. the average person. Okay. So I think that it was easier for me to accept some of this. And we talk about rock bottom sometimes and, yeah. and that's even, you know, a controversial topic in terms of where are you waiting for somebody to hit rock bottom mm. versus when are you going to get them? Right. And, and I think fentanyl has really changed that conversation too. So, so I think that Without the onslaught of fentanyl, which I'm going to call 2015, you know, the fentanyl, of course, was being used before that. I, I had used yeah. fentanyl, you know, years before, but but not in the sense of of the poisoning I'm talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it is different. Somebody using fentanyl lollipops or lozenges or you know transdermal patches, even even injectable, right? You know, somebody like in a hospital setting who might have gotten their hands on on some of those more potent uh, opioids. Completely different than than the poisonings that have happened from 2015 up yeah. until up until now, you know. So so I think that that whereas in the past maybe we had time, right? Time there was a period of time between when somebody when it looks to me like you've hit rock bottom, okay. So me as an outside observer mm-hmm. until you actually feel that you do, and then you're ready to start taking some actions to get better. There is a period of time there. Nowadays it's like that gap has become almost like non-existent, right? It's like, it's like, you're just dead. I mean, you get the wrong batch on the wrong day and that's it, you know, game over. Like there's no, and, and, and then the whole line about you can't, they like, recover dead people, you know, essentially. But, okay. So, so it's kind of like, at what point can we, can we start making some changes in any, yeah, so now I am, I am under the mindset of, of any positive change, you know, any, any positive change. So everything that, that comes about now, I am, um, not only am I not, antagonistic towards it, but I am supportive of it. Right. So, mm. you know, you know, we can talk safe injection sites. We can talk yeah. all, all types of things. Uh, you know, of course, clean needle programs. I feel that a lot of people are kind of on board with that one. Right. But there are a lot of other, you know, things where people might say this is enabling. Okay. Mm. So it's kind of like the question between what is enabling somebody and you are preventing them from, from kind of having the privilege of hitting bottom, so to speak. Right. Versus what is just you 
trying to keep this person alive long enough that they might then have that same experience that you had. So that is why I do talk about um, the uh, the abstinence thing right off the top, you know, where mm-hmm. I will just mention that from the beginning and say, this is my story, but that's not everybody's story. One of the things that I hear you saying that I really resonate with is, is the nuance and where we are starting to understand different versions of what this might look like for people as a way to open doors, as a way to get a foot in the door for them before they ever have to hit rock bottom or before there ever has to be severe consequences or before, especially with this idea of, of the opioid epidemic and, and fentanyl and the way that it is really rapidly shifting before there ever is severe consequences like overdose or or even death. So I really resonate with that idea in, in my own story. And I, I speak similarly, say, you know, I, I am like fully, fully abstinent from alcohol. There's no version of using it that works in my life and and it would have severe consequences very, very quickly. But I think there's a lot of space for other ways of working through that model of change that you mentioned, the the stages of change from pre-contemplation to contemplation to action to all of the things that we know are part of that. So you are fully abstinent now. And what is kind of like, you say 10 years ago, what did that look like? And how did you get to a place where you live in suburbia, you have two kids, you run this recovery business? What is your story? Yeah. And I, um, I promise that I will answer that question next. Uh, you kind of made me think of <laughs> <Yeah>. something. <laughs> you made me think of something, so I might bounce around just a bit. Beautiful. Um, talk, talking about the abstinence piece again. So I agree with you, right? So, so I am. That is that is what I have chosen for my recovery, and I believe in my heart of hearts that that is the only path for me, right? So I don't. There's nothing in my head that says, "Well, maybe you can do this. Maybe you can do that." Now, I I think that it is a spectrum, and there and 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 life will intervene at times right so i i actually you know had like an instagram post not not too long ago um, where i was saying that if somebody is recovering from opioid addiction there will be a point in this person's life where there is a legitimate medical reason to take opiates okay and and then what what you were going to do at, at that point like nobody can say for sure and, and that's the whole yeah. uh like to thine own self be true and my story is uh, two years ago almost two years ago is april of 2020 this is like, you know, weeks into the pandemic. So it was just the most horrible timing. Of, uh, I was in a horrible car accident mm. and I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. My head went through the windshield and I was, you know, they kind of had to cut me out of the car and pull me out. To, it, was, it, was, it was horrible. It was, mm. it, was a, it was a bad experience. And I needed surgery for the first time. Okay, like Not the first time in recovery, the first time. You know, so that was a legitimate time to, to use opiates. Okay, so when I was first in the ER, which again, worst time ever, by the way, to... Oh my God, it was so bad. It's like, they didn't want yeah. anybody in the hospitals, right? right. They, they, so like, you're just sitting in there. Um, like I was sitting in there for probably like an hour, I, hmm. I think. Well, first they put me through the CAT scan, so I should say that. So, okay. you know, so they kind of <laughs> met, yeah, they, they did that little thing. And, and uh, I don't really have too many memories of that part, but they did hmm. do like the initial assessment. So once they realized that I was kind of, you know, still cognitively functioning, they Stable-ish. brought me to this room. <laughs> Stable-ish, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, and they put me in this room and then like an hour later, somebody comes in. Uh, the, the nurse comes in and starts like, administering morphine. You know, I guess it's mm. you know, kind of standard, you know, standard dose of morphine. And then they're yeah. going like, to reset my toe. Okay. Cause it, it like slipped out of place. So they had to do that. And I said no to it. Okay. Mm. So this is how entrenched that yeah. idea of I can't use them is. Now they end up setting the toe without it. It was excruciating <sighs> pain. 
I end up going through surgery. That gives surgery. me a pit in my stomach thinking about it. I'm kind oh, of it was, it was absolutely terrible. It was absolutely terrible. This guy, and and it didn't work right away. He's just pulling Ugh. it and twisting it. And then like, he can't get it. Then he had to call someone because like, he was the intern, I think. And then he oh, had to call no. him like the, the actual guy. You're like, I'm not here for the interns. Totally. I'm like, don't give me the guy who this is his first time trying to uh, you know, reset a toe. Give me the guy who does 50 of these a day. Uh, so then I had surgery about, whatever it was like a week later whenever they were able to get me in um and and i refused the pain medication there as well you know i used the mm-hmm. um, uh yeah kind of like high high strength motrin yeah. a few other things right yeah they're, you know they're alternating them uh, but i refused the the opiates and it was excruciating mm. it was like once that nerve block wore off it was 24 hours in i guess and, and it's like three o'clock in the morning and i'm staring up at the ceiling and i'm thinking like what are like, what are you doing? Mm. <laughs> what are you, you know, like no one's walking in right now, high-fiving you. You know, this right. is not, this is not, uh, this is not like 80s, you know, Rambo, like macho man kind of, <laughs> kind of stuff. Like, what is, you know, that you didn't join Martyrs Anonymous. So, yeah. so it's like, what exactly is, so the reason that I tell that story is because that is how strong that stuff can mm. really sit in, right? Where it's, it becomes a little bit fuzzy, you know, mm-hmm. when should I ever take it? And when should I? So if that happened t- today, I don't know. Like, I don't know exactly what I would do. I know that it was the worst physical pain that I had been in. But I tell that story just to say, that's what I did. I'm not I'm not saying everybody should should do it that way. Yeah. And you know, I think that that's I, I find a lot of people, especially if they're in early sobriety, and they're specifically because the people I work with are in sobriety for alcohol, that that does come up. Like you said, life will force you to realize that this is a time when you have to choose if this aligns with your version of sobriety and if it aligns with your version of like wellness in your body. And I think that that's a really good conversation to have because as you said, it's inevitable. It's something that people will always experience. So I hear you saying before that you were pretty staunch, entrenched in this idea of complete abstinence. Tell us the story of how all of this came to be. I, I mean, I'll try to give you, I'll try to give you 15 years, you know, in a, yeah. in a relatively condensed, condensed fashion. There's, there's so many great topics we could, we could get into. Um, like I said, I could sit here for hours, you know, like on this on this subject for me uh you know so i i started like a little late i guess in everything i you know like nothing really too like remarkable in, in uh, childhood in terms of like big t types of things yeah. right it, you know it's it is like reflecting back now you know six years into this process and having been doing you know like a lot of work and reading a lot and talking with a lot of people and studying this this type of stuff as well and experiencing it of course i do see that period of time differently but right. but in terms of, of of those kind of major issues uh no you know they were not there um i got you know i started drinking you know sometime in high school uh and that was and that was great you know it, you know really did for me that what i couldn't do for myself and i really had had that experience of just being full right that that and it's you know such an interesting thing it's like it's like and i'll hear a lot of people talk about this before we okay, we the, who are now in the recovery community, yeah. um, or we who go on to develop, you know, some type of substance use disorder, before we're exposed to that thing that works, mm. we don't know that we were missing that thing. Yep. Because how would you know, right? Mm. You know, it's just that's just you. That's just the way you've always felt. So, yeah, you get anxious sometimes, and you get you know, can't sleep, and you don't always feel comfortable. But it's like everybody feels the same way about everything, right? So, because because it's like how would we? 
how would we compare? And then I drink and then that, that fills that stuff in and, mm. and it was great. Uh, and then we started drinking and smoking weed and, and that was great. And then that went on for a little while. And then at some point somebody got a, you know, prescription for Viking in, yeah. um, and I took that, you know, one night and, and um, uh, and my life changed forever, you know, mm. and my life permanently changed forever. And I, and I, and I believe that that something, literally something changed in my brain where, yeah. so I was probably about 19 years old, like when I was first exposed to that. Uh, and I've never, ever since been the same, right. Mm. You know, it is, it is the person who was there for those first, that first half of my life basically is not the same person who is, mm. who is here now. Um, and that was it was a love moment, you know, is what it was. Like when I, I've, I've struggled for years to really try to, to like describe what it was. Right. Cause it's, it's another one of those things where if six people like are in a room taking this stuff and everybody kind of looks sedated the same way. Right. Or everybody kind of looks, it's like intoxication sort of looks like intoxication. Yeah. You know, you can't, um, it's very hard to like objectively say how somebody's feeling. Like there are ways to measure it. Right. So even like with alcohol, there are ways to measure exactly what's going on cognitively right. uh, that somebody might be predisposed to an alcohol addiction down the line. Mm -hmm. Same kind of things with opiates, but I didn't know at the time that everybody wasn't having this, the same experience, mm. but um, uh, I, I know now that it's the feeling of love. You know, mm. it's, uh, you know, I believe that every alcohol to some extent also there's, there are a lot of overlaps, you know, um, if we're looking at the brain, there, there, there are a lot of overlaps between alcohol and opiates, you know, mm. um, that is why certain drugs like naltrexone, for example, okay, right. like there's a reason that like naltrexone is not given for for amphetamine addiction. Hmm. Uh, it is not given for benzodiazepine addiction. It's not given for most process addictions, right? Like it can it can temper some of the some of like the high from, you know, say it's sex addiction, gambling addiction, even shopping, right? Mm -hmm. Some of that stuff can be tempered certainly by naltrexone, but yeah. it is never proven to be a, a, an effective treatment. So we don't give a shopping addicted person, a Vivitrol shot, yeah. right? But, but it's like naltrexone can help with the alcohol. And, and a lot of that is endorphin mediated, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so for, for, for somebody to get that endorphin effect, there has to be some type of endorphin deficiency to yeah. begin with. Right. Uh, otherwise talk to most people who take opiates, mm -hmm. just, just the majority of the population has taken opiates, right? At some point in their life, you've had something, you've had a tooth surgery or something. Two uh, C-sections. Two C-sections, yeah, yeah. People take opiates at some point. They're going to be exposed to them, and they're not going to describe it the way that I'm describing it, where, yeah. I'm, where I'm falling in love, right? You know, they're going to – they don't like feeling that kind of slurry, mm. you know, sedated. They don't like being constipated, right? They don't like <laughs> – just like all the stuff that kind of comes along with like yeah. opiates, people don't like that, mm -hmm. so they don't do it. Like they'll do it if they're in if they're in physical yeah. pain because they don't want to be in physical pain. Right. But they're not doing it for the emotional pain. Mm. Uh, so that was me. And then, uh, you know, that was, it was right kind of a, right as Oxycontin was really taking the everything by storm, just like the classic story of well, like, why are you spending $10 on one of these when you can spend, mm. you can spend $50 and get the equivalent of eight of these, right? $50 was always, was always a lot for one pill, but, yeah. but that was the, that was it, right? And was, why crush this stuff up into this whole gigantic mound of powder when you can crush it up into this tiny little mm. thing? And it made sense, right? Yeah, you know, they, they kind of sold us on that, and uh, and it sort of took off from there. You know, I went to school. I you know I studied biology. I studied nutrition. I was I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like around the age twenty two. Who does? Who does exactly? And and when I tell this story now, I will make the joke. I'll say I, I was very good at math and science, 
So like all that I knew for sure was I was very good at math and science and I loved Oxycontin mm. and I loved Adderall. And when you put all those things in a pile, what kind of conclusion does a drug addicted 22 year old come up with? Who's, who's pretty good at taking those kind of tests. I decided to go to pharmacy school. Mm. Um, and, and I never, I never did it cause I get asked this question all the time. I never did it with, uh, with the intention of, you know, diverting medications, uh, yeah. of, of, of just getting, you know, quick, easy access. Never. That was just a topic of interest. Yeah. It was just something that, that, that I liked. I liked studying it. It was easy. And, and I just randomly took this exam this one time and I happened to score like really well. Then I got into the school. It's like, if I, like, I think about that a lot, you know, I mean, I probably just had a really good day mm. of, of testing. Cause it was a, it was a really hard exam yeah. and I feel like I, I feel like I shouldn't have performed quite as well as I did. <laughs> if I would have not, my life would have, might've been different. Mm -hmm. Now I believe that it would have manifested, of course, of yeah. course. Right. But, but it would not have, have, uh, accelerated to the degree that it did. Yeah. Right. Where, where it was, I mean, to this day, I've, I've, I've worked with tons of people and like all, you know, you know, professionally, personally, you know, like on a volunteer basis. I haven't met anybody who was who was consuming more in terms of overall overall quantity. I have not yet come in contact with somebody, and that's like I say that not because I'm some have some superhuman body that can process this stuff. It, yeah. it is that's opiates are different than the other stuff when it comes to this. Right. You know, they, I mean, tolerance can it can just keep going. Mm. What gets people into problems with the opiates early on, right, is that people do not have unlimited access. Right? Yeah. Even if even if they had like unlimited funds, which most people right. don't. Even if they, even if they were, you know, had unlimited money, at some point their supply would run out. You know, their their guy wouldn't call them back. Something would happen where they'd be forced into withdrawal, and that's what that whole cycle things become unmanageable yeah. really quickly, yeah. right? Uh, but in my case, it just it literally went up by a factor of eighty because I used to think about like my the my dependence yeah. in terms of factors of eighty. I, you know, like I'm doing eighty, you know, eighty milligrams per day. Now next year, 160 milligrams mm. per day. Next year, 240, and and it went like that mm. for you know over 10 years. I, in my 20s, I, I did not draw a sober breath. Like there was not a one 24-hour period mm. from age 20 to age 29 that I drew a sober breath, and um, and I never thought that it was going to be like that. And, you know, in yeah. fact, in fact, every single birthday, like those entire 10 years, every birthday, so somebody would get me a cake or something, and there would be some candles and. And I would make a wish to myself, and like my wish would be that next year, when I'm blowing out this uh, these candles, that I'm not going to be chemically dependent mm. on this stuff. And and I it, and it wasn't just a wish. I I I I really believed it every year. I like, I remember thinking like like I'm you know 26, mm. like 26 is way too old to be doing this, you know. And then like next year, 27 is this is ridiculous, you know. I mean, it's one thing when you're 19, but mm. 20, and the, the next year, 28 is. And then at some, and then what's what's really ironic is that like that next year, I actually stopped making that wish, you know, kind of the, right before my my thirtieth birthday. And then like that following year, I was not. Um, now I didn't stay sober. That was I was sort of forced into it, you know. So it got to the point I was out there and I was, uh, I mean, I was functioning. I was performing. Yeah. Like, I liked my Obviously job. You went through pharmacy school. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I did it out there. Like, I did like it, you know. Like I said, I didn't get into it because I thought that this was going to happen. I, I, I really enjoyed it, and I had been in this point before. I had plenty of opportunities, you know, where things were kind of coming up where I could have just, um, you know, self-disclosed. And and I did. Like at age twenty-nine, I, I, I basically like admitted to my employer what was going on. Um, and they reported it to the board like immediately, which I didn't think that they were, you know, that they were going to do. 
Um, I, I was I was mandated to do 90 days inpatient treatment. So that's that stages of change thing I was saying where you know, where it's like you can force somebody, right? It's right. like you know, like administrative courts or like judicial courts yeah. kind of get involved. Yeah, you're going to either something terrible is going to happen or you're going to go to treatment. Yeah. When I worked in the ER as an ER social worker, social worker, you know, we could put people on holds too for psych things like that. Like fifty two fifty kind of holds yeah. or like three yeah. three or two. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. the numbers, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know every state. I know, yeah, every state has has a different. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm yeah, I'm familiar with that too. I guess you can think of it like that, right? It's like it wasn't. I guess it wasn't technically a psychiatrical. Like it didn't go in the books as a, as a psychiatrical, but it was. It, I mean, it may as well have been. Yeah. It was. They were like, "You got to go here for ninety days," and it was. Um, I never fully detoxed mm. up to that point. Um, there have been you know little times where I had to get myself like on and off Suboxone throughout the years if. Because you know, I had access, but once in a while, like my manufacturers, you know, like stuff would, would be back ordered. Yeah. Things things did happen once in a while, and I would transition myself. But but I never I never actually uh, experienced withdrawal. Mm. Uh, and and you know, I was I was medicated for the first kind of couple of days, and they offered me you know some type of long standing um, kind of maintenance type of treatment, and I declined it. That was the decision that I made kind of early that that was the route that I was going to go. Mm. You know, and I knew that it was going to be. I knew that it was going to be painful. I didn't know how long it was going to last. Mm. And I talk about this a lot too with uh, like you and I have known each other for a while and you you know you basically know what I'm all about more or less and I'm kind of like a one trick pony, you know, I'm, uh, my my <laughs> my like my story is, like the whole like reaction part <laughs> even of of like reaction recovery is it is a reaction to what I see and hear is that and this is not our fault, you know, us as as like the recovery community. But a lot of times, like when we're telling stories and and sharing experiences, it really kind of comes across as, and I might even be doing this now, you know, if I'm not careful, right? It comes across as I was in bad shape and I was really sick and desperate, and now I don't, I'm fully abstinent. I don't use any drugs, and my life is wonderful, yeah. <laughs> right? And here's the beautiful result of all of that hardship. Yeah, exactly, and and, and that is. It is like that is so not what it was. Mm. There's a couple phrases that I've that I've coined. One is post detox disillusionment, um, and I'll talk about that one in a second. But but then the other is is kind of getting so me being like a one trick pony is I talk about this like desert time. Okay, so the <laughs> the desert time I say is not uh, when Moses you know is cast out and he has been he he and his people have been freed from bondage, right? But it still took them forty years to get to the promised land. Okay, so like they're no longer in slavery, but they have to walk through this desert time. They mm. have to do their desert time before getting to the promised land. And that's what I think about in terms of like early recovery for a lot of people. Mm. Um, certainly the people that gravitate towards me. This yeah. is not everybody's experience, right? And I say that all the time. You know, there are people that they stop, like they're off alcohol or something for a week and, and they're, <laughs> you know, shouting to the mountaintops and they're loving it and, and you know, they, and, and they're, Posting thirty day pictures and my mm -hmm. skin looks better, my face looks better, yeah. like and all this kind of stuff. And wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, I mean, maybe that is their experience. I, 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 I usually, I usually cringe just a little bit, like when I sit, you know, see that, just, just like for their own sake, you know, because yeah. I, yeah, I feel that they might be, you know, setting themselves up potentially for, yeah. for some trouble. But, but, but my thing is, um, you have to do this desert time, right? Mm. And, and we have to do that with other people. You know, so I say that I've been in recovery since 2016. Like what I'm describing to you right now, where I'm getting court order, that was that was 2013. Ah. Okay, so 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 there were years. I mean, the the worst years of my life, hands down, not even 
no close second came after I was introduced to recovery. I was introduced. I, I, I had actually been through all the steps. Hmm. I had read all the books, all the books. I mean, yeah, you know, we're kind of talking about it. That's a type of person too, right? The person yeah. that, that just that personality that, you know, wants to like win sobriety. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is me. I, I am uh, the former first chair, the eldest daughter. I like winning at things. I won at therapy last year and it felt great. Now I'm back in therapy. So, <laughs> oh my God. So you might, you had a, well, that's okay. You can, you can win it again in, yeah. in 2022. You're still eight yeah. more months. So. Yeah. Uh, give, give me six weeks and he'll get me off his client role soon. I you'll be the winner. That. Yeah. I'll be the winner. But yeah, you're my, you're my book guy too. You're my go-to for like book recs and when I need some, some sort of topic. Cause I know you read them all. And I still do that, you know, and, and, and the difference though, like the difference is Back then, I was sort of reading it to win, essentially. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about it like this, you know, but kind of looking back, just if I know all this stuff and I know the history, and, and, and what's funny is that like there is literally like no more annoying person. If you're yeah. hanging around like a lot of people that are in like early recovery, there's yeah. no more annoying person than the guy who has like 12 days and he's correcting somebody because totally. they're totally misquoting history. And it's like, totally. Uh, but I was that guy. <laughs> and that's probably why it bothers me so much, like to this day, when I see yeah. it, you know, I, Cause I'm probably feeling like what I was doing to other people back then. Yeah. Um, but I, but I still do all that stuff. And my little caveat there, and I'll say this all the time, right? If you are that type who's kind of trying to figure this out, so to speak, right? That you're trying to figure it out. You know, you, something happened to you and you don't like it necessarily, or at least not for a long time. And you want to find out why exactly this happened. You can do all your research and mm. read all the books. You know, I, I've read a book a week since getting sober. And I have them all in my house and I, I have hundreds of books in my, I have a thing back here, if you can see it, like right next to my bed that, you know, that has been my nighttime sedative, right? Every single night I read until basically the book falls out of my hand, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that means it's time to turn off the light. You can do all that stuff and it's fantastic, but you also have to keep taking all the other actions as if yeah. you're not also doing that, right? Yeah. So, so, so it is not, it is not replacing any of mm -hmm. the actual stuff. Like the way that I'll talk about it is like, like it has to be like entertainment, right? So, mm. so it's not, it's not necessarily don't think of it as part of the treatment. Like kind of somebody will say to me, oh, you know, you're trying to do all this. I say, I say, no, it, you have to do something at 930 at night, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like some people are watching Netflix, which is fine. I'm in bed like reading a book and, mm. and that, that is what I choose to do between say 930 to whatever, 1030, or, you know, whenever I go to sleep. So, so you can do all that stuff. And I have. Oh, got books that I recommend to everybody in terms of I really feel that this will resonate with you, right? Because yeah. of course, not everything is going to resonate with everybody. Also, some books I have found can be like re or I will suggest with like little kind of like an asterisk, asterisk right? Where, yeah. where it's like, where it's like, yeah, this is a good book, but trauma like related books tend to be yeah. this way, right? Where where, where they're uh, just a couple of days ago, you know, I was talking to somebody about like the body keeps the score. I asterisk else that like, one every single time. I'm like, proceed with caution, but also great. Exactly. Yeah. Cause, cause if you're not ready for that yeah. and if you're sitting there with that, then what our brain tends to do at times is we start processing our own trauma mm -hmm. as if we're a trauma therapist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're not right. right. So like, we're kind of working. It's almost like we're working with the book, processing through our own trauma but we're not skilled enough to be able to navigate that. <laughs> and it's bringing it all up in the first place. And it's bringing it up. And then, you know, we don't have the skills or the tools mm. to be able to do something with it. And then it can sit there. And that's why that needs to be done in a, in a, in a more contained setting. 
Well, and, and and I'm curious if it's the same for you, but I had an immense amount – in talking about reading all the books and knowing all the things, I had an immense amount of cognitive dissonance between what I knew clinically because I have my master's in clinical therapy. Like I know all the books about addiction. I went through six years of school studying psychology. I know about all of the things. And yeah. still it was it was showing up in my life in a way that did not match my book learning. So mm-hmm. I think that there's this like unique kind of hell where you know the things, you've read the books, yeah. you've you've learned all of the information and the lived experience that you're living through, the actual actions that are happening in your day-to-day life aren't matching up with that. And I think it speaks so much to the different parts of our brain that are at work and how we can have this intellectual desire, but we also have all these other pieces of our brain that are doing their own thing and running running the show in different ways. And one of the things I wrote down from what you were talking about that really resonated with me was, I believe the quote was, I never thought it would be like this. And I think a lot of people are going to really resonate with this. Like, I never... I never prescribed myself an alcohol problem. I never Mm. thought that I would become a young mother and suddenly be drinking two bottles of wine a night. I never thought – and I was really mad about it for a while too. I was really mad that this was my thing, that this was the bullshit that I had to deal with, that that it didn't fit with who I was and the persona I had had my whole life. And I think that a lot of people are going to say like, yeah, I never thought it was going to be like that. So – 2016, what was the turning – 2015 or 2016, what was the turning point for you? Um, Yeah, so that preceding year uh, was the first time that kind of physiologically things started, Hmm. you know, catching up to me, okay? So so things were going bad in terms of like career problems, relationship problems, friendships, so all kinds of other things before that. But physically, it didn't really start to unravel until then. And Hmm. and my kidneys were shutting down, my liver was shutting down. I wasn't able to – process fluids uh, correctly. Uh, I ended up gaining about 40 pounds uh, over about like three weeks, maybe three or four weeks and, you know, you know fluid. Like, I wasn't mm. really eating much differently. Um, if I pressed down like, on like my wrist, it would take a yeah. couple seconds edema. to like, spring back up, that kind of pitting edema. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so I was not, it would take like a two minutes to start, you know, peeing, <laughs> just like, mm. all, like all these like really weird things that had never happened before. That all started happening. So, so mm. that was a big part of it. I was back here. My son was just born. Okay. You know, since 2016, like my son is six years old. Right. So, so, so that kind of like lined up with him. We read these like Nancy Tillman books. Do you guys have any of those? Mm-mm. I would sit with him at night as an infant, you know, a couple months old and reading, like I couldn't even make it through like this book without mm. just breaking down. You know, I, like, I felt so terrible that like for the first time, it like, wasn't even for me. Right. I, like, I didn't even value like what was going on. Like, with myself at this point, because because like there were some other things, and there's some like amphetamine induced psychosis. So I was like, deteriorating mentally as well, hmm. and I did not value like, my own life at this point. But I would, like I would look at him and just think, man, you know, there there are seven and a half billion people on this planet. You know, this guy got so unlucky hmm. <laughs> to to have gotten you know beamed into this house, right? Hmm. And, and it's like what a well like an unfortunate turn of events for him. And you know, at that point. I had, I had been through treatment. I'd been through 90 days of inpatient treatment. I did some outpatient, right? So I, I had been through that. And, um, now again, I don't recommend this to everybody. Like that was not going to be like my path. You yeah. know, I had this, like, I had this feeling that, that, that at that point I was either going to 
get sober or I wasn't. Uh, and it was such a strange experience. And, and, and I was, I was 12 stepped into a group, um, you know, know, around my area. We had recently moved there, so I didn't know anybody. This was, wasn't even in my exact neighborhood. This is, you know, it was like 30 Mm -hmm. minutes away and somebody would come and get me and bring me, bring me out there. And I, and I detoxed in the back of this room and it was in the winter. Oh, and it was so cold and I was just, and I was so sick and I would just Mm -hmm. sit in the back and like I wasn't working, you know, at this point, and I would just wonder, like, what had happened, you know, like what hmm. I was making a ton of money managing, like, the largest pharmacies in Southern California hmm. a couple of years ago, and now this. Hmm. You know, people ask me, like, what, like, what was different, and I, yeah, I struggled for a while to answer that question. I still, I still struggle to answer it because it is hard to, it's hard to describe it. But, but if I, when I'm pressed, you know, I say. The difference, okay, so so say between 2013 to, to 2016, the difference was was I accepted that um, that I was going to stay sober long before I accepted that I was ever going to feel better again, mm. and that's the best way that I can describe it. Because what happened to me the first time, and I kind of you know sort of like glazed over this, is I it was my first time ever getting sober, right? So so I I knew that detox was horrible and, mm-hmm. and withdrawal was so painful, but I also knew that if I was somehow able to make it through that. And I got to, you know, three months sober or something, you, you know, three months completely absent, right? So there's nothing yeah. in my system at all. And I was going to be good to go. And then mm. my 16-year-old self would be back and I would just be, I've learned my lesson, right? And and, and that would be, you know, I, like I had a couple waves of depression that I had never, ever experienced. Mm. Uh, suicidal depression. Um, and again, I don't know if that just wasn't ever there before that, you know, like if it was actual depression because of the events of my life or... Maybe I had some of these episodes before, yeah. but they were all being masked by drugs, right? Right. I have no way to know that, but I, I had this and I was not able to cope with any of it. And I, and I had relapsed and I wasn't in the pharmacy, right? So I didn't have access to my pills. I got into heroin and then hmm. yeah, I got into like methamphetamine. So, so like that was that 2014 in, into 2015 yeah. year. Uh, but this time, you know, it just, um, I accepted the fact that I was going to be sober and I, and I got sober for my son. Absolutely. Like you'll hear once in a while people say, oh, you, know, you can't get sober for anybody that is absolute bullshit right mm-hmm. it, 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 you you have to stay sober for yourself that's true yeah. <laughs> okay but to get sober no you get sober for whatever yeah. reason you get sober maybe it's to keep your kids right maybe it's to right. get served divorce papers and you're trying to hang on to something maybe it's your boss just said if i smell alcohol one more time you're fired mm-hmm. maybe you know maybe like the doctor says if you drink again you know your liver is done, okay, yeah. permanently. This is not like the resilient type. We're talking, you're finished. Mm. Like maybe that's the reason, right? But but it's any one of these reasons can get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, like none of that stuff is going to sustain it, right? So right. so so like at some point that has to kind of kind of right. you know shift over into something else. But that's what it was, and and um and I did my desert time, man. And I've since gotten into kind of heavy into also like nutrition and and yeah. dietary supplementation, and I. And I see that, you know, so like when I talk about that stuff, by the way, I talk about like recovery as a, as a pie, mm. right? And it's like, that all of us, what, what uh, percentage of the pie each of these things makes up is a little different for everybody. But let's just say, let's just say like kind of like a fellowship and community is mm-hmm. 50%, right? So for everybody, you, you got to do that. You got to feel safe with other people. Mm. And then you start filling in the other things, you know, you know sense of purpose, different stuff. And, and like, let's just say like nutritional deficiencies, let's call it 10 to 12 to 15%, yeah. somewhere, somewhere in that range. Um, so, you know, it is a relatively smaller slice of the pie, but if you're talking about 
And then also for the sake of argument, let's just say that like, you need to get to 75 to be able to maintain sobriety because like, mm-hmm. if you're below 75, it's just mm. too painful. If we're if you're hovering around that 70 mark or 68 mark, 10% is going to be just enough to keep you over the top, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things that I did differently this time. Um, but it was brutal. I mean, I didn't think I was ever going to feel motivated to do anything mm-hmm. uh, without drugs. I didn't think I was ever going to be able to study something, pay attention without Adderall watch TV without Oxys and Xanax and sleep without any kind of anything, mm. right? It's, there was a very long period of time where I did not think that that was possible. Yeah. And this is just going to be my life. And, um, you know, thankfully that wasn't true. And I mean, I think, I think it's really powerful what you said about like you accepted that you were going to be sober regardless of the fact that it wasn't going to feel good for a while for potentially a long time. And mm. You know, I think a lot of people don't anticipate when they first do remove a substance from their life that just exactly the physiological impacts of that. And they go into it, especially in, as you said, this recovery world that we're in, where you see all these people with years and years of recovery talking about how glamorous their life is and how wonderful their life is, but you don't see day one or 20 or day 30 for them. And people go into this expecting things like the pink cloud. And when they don't have that experience, their bodies don't feel that way. That really puts them at risk for using again, for, for using drugs, for using alcohol. And I think it's really important. And, and truly one of the things that we do here in this podcast and this storytelling is about the parts that are hard because I think it's important to know about desert time. I think it's important to know about the period between the bottom, whether it's rock bottom, whether it's a quiet bottom or a soft bottom or a medium bottom, and the person you see now on Instagram with the splashy headshots, there's <sighs> there's a lot of desert time in between there. And there's a lot of brutality in some ways and just like a lot of, man, it's just really, really hard. And I think that's really powerful. But when you talk about reading your son bedtime stories and not knowing quite what it was, I hear again, the models of change, the stages of change going from like, I teach about it in a train metaphor. Like you have a train and it's leaving a depot and it's a one way trip. It is never returning to that depot. You can never go back to the time before you departed that depot with this thought of, this isn't working for me. I can't keep doing this. Alcohol is not serving me specifically since I I work with alcohol. And you're always in some sort of forward motion. It might be really slow motion. It might have starts and stops. You might pop on a different track for a minute, but you can never go back to the depot before you ever had this idea in your brain. And when you talk about, you know, I don't know what it was, I I just see like the train just inching forward in some sort of way that was just enough to get it over that line from Mm. pre-contemplation into contemplation and action. And, you know, I think it's really important, the space you hold in our community and the way you talk about this, because people do speak about this in a way that glamorizes it and do speak about it in a way that makes it seem easy or, and I think there's, there's a balance, right? Like we want accessibility. We want people to be able to see themselves, but it also takes an immense amount of work. So when you talk about this pie chart and you talk about this percentage and this, this tipping point, one of the things you and I talked about before this podcast was a phrase you call recovery capital. And I'm wondering Mm. if that is part of that or what recovery capital is and how we use something like the concept of recovery capital in our own life. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I want to kind of bookmark in my head just the topic of social media <laughs> if we have time. Yeah. I want to yeah, yeah. I want to make a couple comments about that. Uh, uh, recovery capital. You know, so so even like what I do right now as a as a recovery coach, most of the folks that I work with they are in that desert time. Mm. You know, that is like that's typically when people are reaching out to me, right? Yep. When I was first starting, I would take on really like, you know like the majority of people as long as it was physically safe. I, I would take on right. the majority. So I always have have you know, ten clients like at any kind of a given time, and it has gotten to the point where I can be like a little bit more selective, right? So so, yeah. so I do want it to be the point where I believe uh, through you know clinical intuition that I can actually help this person. Mm-hmm. So I am catching a lot of people in that in that desert time, right? So they are stable in terms of like if they it's not that they're drinking every day to the point that if yeah. they stop they're going to right. seize, right? MDTs, so, yeah. so they are physically stable, um, but they're not kind of emotionally grounded to the point that they want to be at. And my thought that is kind of permeating each conversation is going to be on recovery capital. I, I, I define recovery capital as, as um, the internal and external resources needed to mm-hmm. initiate and sustain recovery. Okay. So it's what is happening. And if we look, I mean, they have done all types of great research. Like William White, I'm not sure if you heard of William White, uh, addiction researcher. He, he has done some unbelievable, probably the most of anybody that I'm aware of in terms of measuring, because they can objectively measure this like recovery capital, and then yeah. they can uh, chart this individual's prognosis over time, right? So, mm. so uh, and of all of the predicting variables, recovery capital, as I just defined it, that is number one. Okay, mm. so that is the number one thing that is going to predict who is going to get to that point of like what I call sustainable recovery. Yep, uh, sustainable remission. To the point where, and I'm defining that as the point where you and your family can sustain your recovery without external help. Okay. Yep. You don't need outpatient anymore. You don't need, yep. you know, you're, you're, you're out in the world, you know, you're doing your thing and you're stable. You're not mm-hmm. just going to be injecting heroin tonight. Like if I'm not looking at you, yeah. right. You're not doing that. You are stable. Um, the recovery capital, and this could be anything, right? So, so we talk about one of the things that I'm kind of very big into right now, and and one of these one of these there's an org- organization that I'm working at right now that is getting recovery coaching into OTP sites, opioid treatment providers, mm. uh, um, uh, and formerly the methadone clinic, right? Yeah. So it's kind of what types of like recovery capital do we need as a recovery coach? So so as a recovery specialist, right? You know, what does that person need to do to help this individual at this moment achieve long term sustained recovery? Hmm. And it's hard. I mean, you think about the things that our society has kind of set up that actively remove recovery capital. Okay. Mm. Um, you know, you yeah. got a possession charge three yeah. years ago and you have yeah. a felony on your record. Part of recovery capital is the ability to get, get and maintain a job yeah. and, to, and to make money. We can say money's not important. It's just right up there with oxygen. Okay. Yeah. If you don't give this person the ability to sustain themselves financially, the risk that they were going to devolve back into, so when you start putting stuff in their way, or they can't get affordable housing because of X, Y, and Z has happened. So that is the external recovery capital that we're talking mm. about, right? That has to be addressed right off the bat. So, so mm. if you're working with somebody, there's there's sort of like a kind of like a pyramid yeah. almost that I'm using, Maslow's. kind of like that. You can can sort of think of it like that. Yeah, exactly. Where if you're not meeting their the capital that they need to achieve housing, okay. Uh, if you want to talk about like Maslow's, mm-hmm. yeah, food, water, shelter, 
Like, I'm not going to go all the way to the top of, of what's the topic? Self-actualization. Self, yeah, self-actualization. <laughs> we'll get to <laughs> that like self-actualization. 10 years from now. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to uh, afford my grocery bill. Yeah. Self-actualization, right? So, right. so, so it is, it is walking with these people kind of up this, this, you know, pyramid, so to speak, and trying to build out the foundation and, and it's not doing it for anybody, right? It is kind yeah. of supporting and then holding them accountable to build these tiny little habits, little, mm. so that we set goals, you know, just in your classic smart goals, we set goals and then we follow that on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And then as that stuff starts to, you know, like materialize, okay, now we can look at the next thing. Now we can mm. look at the next thing. Uh, it is it is amazing what can happen in a relatively short period of time. I, I hear the biopsychosocial model in that. There's a lot of that in there. And I think that that's a really interesting shift we're starting to take in the recovery field in general, like realizing that to be sober, it can't be a singular event. It can't be a singular strategy. It really requires looking at the external, the internal, our stress levels, our, like you said, ability to get a job and, and have financial security. And if People are listening and they're one of my clients. We, we talk about the body battery a lot in our physical, mm-hmm. mental, and emotional capacity. If you don't have any capacity, it makes it a thousand times harder. So sometimes I'm talking about laundry and how we streamline like yeah. kid drop off or whatever it looks like for, yep. for somebody's okay, big one. Yeah, for somebody's actual capacity to be open enough to, to be able to make this change in a sustainable way rather than a quick fix or something that works for now and then goes off the rail down the road. So I think that that's a really interesting theory and it's it's cool that you're bringing it into places. So I know you do a lot of volunteering right now. What kind of work are you doing in the space in addition to your recovery coaching? Yeah, so I'm working with a company right now where we're essentially trying to bring recovery coaching on a more scalable level mm-hmm. to a larger group of people, right? Uh, we're calling it the recovery coaching, but it's but it's that peer recovery specialist. Yeah. So, so those peer recovery specialists that like you might see, you know, in like an ER setting, yeah. even like an inpatient outpatient setting. At times, you know, some places are kind of getting more. Like more insurance carriers are now mm-hmm. are now covering that service. So, how can we move that virtually in a similar manner, you know, manner to what we do with with you know telehealth, yeah. uh, you know, therapy right. kinds of things, sort of like the same kind of model, but we're we're looking at it more that that kind of peer specialist. How might that look? Opening access. Opening access, exactly to that long term, right? It's like mm-hmm. I talk about this all the time. We are we we as a society, you know, we as people that are trying to help in this epidemic, we are doing a good job at thirty, sixty, ninety days. Mm. More people have access to to recovery. You know, it's not perfect, of course, but you know, more people have access than have ever had access at any time in human history. More people are you know getting off this stuff. Like we know about the overdoses, right? Because yeah. you know, because that's sort of making the numbers. But again, that is just poisonings. That is that is fentanyl poisonings. That's not mm. necessarily we are actually prescribing less opioids. Less and less people are becoming chemically dependent on opioids. I'm sticking with that one, for example. You know, with alcohol, even over the the pandemic, that you know that yeah. spike. But we'll see how those numbers you know shake out. Like this year, right. that'll be. That'll be telling. Um, so we've done a good job, but we have done a terrible job at that maybe ninety day to five year mark, mm. right? <laughs> kind of like where where it's gonna where you fall off, and yes. which the, can still be desert days. Yeah, which which is like, yeah. like there's a lot of desert days that are sort of mixed into there. It's not financially plausible to have somebody in an inpatient setting for five right. years, of course, right? So it's like of course the insurance is going to only pay for that for a short period of time. And I'm not blaming the insurance. 
yeah. carriers and any of this kind of stuff. Although they're the ones who were offering <laughs> treatment for a couple months yeah. and yeah. then we sort of stopped. Um, but, but there are other services like, hmm. like, you know, like recovery coaching in that capacity. Okay. So that's a little bit different than the private stuff that I do or that you do. This is that, that kind of peer yeah. recovery specialist role. Um, but that is a role that can then stay with that person hmm. more long-term, right? Hmm. So like, we don't just say when you finish IOP, okay, you know, we're going to have a graduation ceremony. Here's your treatment center coin, you know, you finish, <laughs> great job, go make a meeting, get your hand up, say you're an alcoholic, yeah. get a sponsor, work the steps and uh, live a good life. And I'm not putting that down, by the way, so I hope that it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't though. I think I hear what you're saying that there needs to be more options than just that. Right. Yeah. That will work for a percentage of people, yeah. right? But that is not, we cannot just say that if that does not work for you, well, you weren't willing enough, you yeah. haven't hit bottom yet, right. you're not in like enough pain. I heard somebody you know telling a story where uh, it was like an H and I panel, you know, you know, like hospitals and institutions panel came into a, I think it was a jail setting. It's very like low income, uh, kind of rough area, and you know there was a group of of maybe like AARs or something came in like and they started talking to these guys, you know, about <laughs> you know, say like when you when it gets bad enough you'll get sober mm. and you're just not in like enough pain. And then the mm. uh, case manager, I think it was like the nursing case manager actually went up to these guys afterwards and, and they're like you know. You know you know, thank you, of course, for your for your time here and, and for volunteering. But you don't understand that you know, my yeah. my patients don't don't hit bottom; right. they live on the bottom. Maslow's okay. Again. It's not an absence of pain; it's an absence of hope. Yeah, you know, they don't need they don't need this psychological change; they need a systems change. Yeah, and and and, and that kind of thing has always sort of stayed with me. And I said, yeah, yeah. So th that is something that I've been very aware of always hmm. that my story is my story, right? And and it's valuable to the uh, to the extent that it's my personal experience, but I cannot just force that on somebody else mm. and say if you're serious, you'll do everything, you know, do exactly like I did and like you'll get everything exactly like I want. That's absurd. I mean, you have a right. whole different life than I do. Right. You've had a whole different experiences before that. You have your family situation is different. Your relationship with your parents is different. Your income is different. You have the safety of your community is different. Hmm. Your your physical health is different. You you have other mental health issues that I don't have. <laughs> it is yeah. it is so absurd to suggest that because we both did heroin in the past, mm -hmm. that I can just say that I know exactly yeah. Here's how what you, you need. I can't think of anything more narcissistic. <laughs> really, <laughs> I, I, I well, really can't. Yeah, it's out there. It's this has been the most treatment like resistant disorder hmm. of all time, right? Yeah. And I'll make this analogy a lot. You know, it is anything else that that takes us by storm and that reaches like epidemic status. Okay. So I, I use like the HIV AIDS epidemic of the 80s. So kind of anything that sort of comes on and it's just, you know, like wreaking havoc. Really and then we start putting all these dollars, all these dollars into it, all these research dollars. And if you fast forward 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, we're doing way better always. Mm. This is one of the only ones where we're actually doing worse. Mm. Right. So this is so complicated. It's so much like, like there's a lot of great science and I love reading it. But to think that we have this thing figured out to the point yeah. that I can confidently say that this is exactly what you need to do. I mean, it's just I can't think of anything more arrogant than that. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's very self-aware to know. And I think that we could talk about the coaching industry <laughs> a lot, but there's a lot of the like yeah. this lived experience worked. So this is what I'm going to teach you. And I think that, you know, obviously that's that's missing a lot of people and, and leaving a lot of gaps 
Well, Jeff, the the last question I ask on every episode of Sober Stories is if your story were to be written in a book or and, and when I say your story, I mean your story before and also your story now, but also maybe your philosophy as well was to be written into a book, what would it be titled? Oh God. <laughs> I should have a good answer because I because I think about, you know, mm-hmm. writing a book. And the title does change in my head once in a while. It would be something like along the lines of uh, of maybe like my name, maybe, you know, just even Jeff Simone colon, a pharmacist journey into and out of hell. Mm. Something along those lines. Because yeah. that is the way that I envision what I experience. Like mm. I, I see it as hell. You know, I, I don't you know, I necessarily believe hell is somewhere else, right? Somewhere below me. You know, I think it's absolutely a place that we can, uh, we can get to here. Mm-hmm. And, and I was there and I'm not there today. Mm, not there today. Well, you and I could talk for hours about this because I also mm. love the theory and all of the book learning that you have. And, and like I said earlier, you're my book guy. I think I just emailed you like this weekend asking for a book recommendation. I'm always here for that. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So I could talk to you about this for hours and hours, but I want to make sure that we are able to give our listeners access to you. So how can they connect with you? How can they find you? What do you have going on in your world? How can people find Jeff to connect with? Uh, yeah. So I have, uh, you know, accounts set up on pretty much all of the social media, you know, platforms, but I, but I try not to spread myself too thin. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram. You know, that is, um, I'm more active there than any of the other ones. Most people know that if they want direct and easy access to me, message me on Instagram, you know, that it's never going to be more than a couple of days before I'm, before I'm getting back to anybody ever. It's usually less than that. Oh, it's Instagram first at at reaction recovery. All, all one word is my, is my handle. Um, I have a lot of YouTube videos that I've uploaded, um, a long form podcast. Uh, you can search, you know, surviving opioids is a podcast that, you know, finished, season one over the fall. My website is www.reactionrecovery.com. Get to me any one of those, any one of those methods and I'll, and I'll respond. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jeff, and in your story and your candor. And I, I think that so many people are going to really resonate with this idea of desert days. I know it's really stuck out to me too. Like I, I wrote it in big capital letters on my notepad, but I really appreciate your time and your energy and the story that you have lent to us today. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Ben. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Dr. Jeff Simone of Reaction Recovery. As mentioned, we're definitely going to need to do a part two with Jeff. He's just such a wealth of knowledge and brings one of my favorite perspectives to our sober community. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.